I think it's safe to say that Romans 16 is the Rodney Dangerfield chapter of Romans, right? No respect. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your, ask your grandparents, right? You know, volumes, tomes, encyclopedias have all been written on the other chapters of Romans, Romans 1 through 15. But Romans 16, not so much. Now, it's easy on one hand to understand why. If you just take a quick glance at Romans 16, you're going to see all these names and places, and no one can spell them, much less pronounce them. And we sort of assign these things, don't we, to, to what we do when we come to the Old Testament and we see these genealogies. We're like, this is too much, it's too complicated, this is irrelevant, I've got pressing matters, what does this have to do with my life today? And we sort of blow past chapters like this. And let me just say, Boroughs, I think that would be a big mistake. Because what we've seen in Romans 1 through 15 are theological propositions, the gospel in the form of theological propositions proclaimed. But what we see in Romans 16 is the gospel actually being lived out in real people's lives in real time. This chapter really gives us a window into the life of the first century church. And what I think we find here in Romans 16 is nothing less than a roadmap for Christian endurance, a roadmap for Christian faithfulness. As you know, right now, deconstruction is all the rage, meaning people who've walked with Christ or sensibly walked with Christ their entire lives have fallen away from the faith. They have reinterpreted their historic orthodox faith into something that's more culturally palpable or acceptable to the, to, the, to the culture at large. And we've seen people walk away, fall, and fall away, not endure. And let me just say, sometimes when I look at that, my, my prayer is simply this, God, I, I want to be faithful. God, I want to endure. God, I want to, I want to persevere. God, I, I don't want to walk away. I, I want to be faithful to the end. Church, don't you want one day to get to the end of your life and to have the Lord Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant? Because that's my heart's desire. It's my heart's desire for you. And I believe that Paul gives us a picture of what enduring faithfulness, enduring commitment, enduring community looks like for us as believers. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read this morning Romans 16, 1 through 16. This is one of those few passages where I've rehearsed it ahead of time, and I've read it out loud, and I can just tell you it's as ugly as it looks, right? Some of you Greek scholars will be horrified in my pronunciation. All I can say is, I dare you to do better. But anyway, here we go. Romans 16, 1 through 16. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. 
Greet my beloved Apentus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Androconus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known by the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplipius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asicritus, Fleon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermos, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. Father, I, I believe I speak for, for most in this room. I hope and pray I do that we want to be a faithful community, we want to be faithful Christians, we want to endure, we want our lives to count. Father, we don't want to expend our time and resources and energies on things that don't matter. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this snapshot of this community of believers in the church in Rome from 2,000 years ago, you would show us its abiding relevance for us today. Lord, we need your help. Lord, we need your help to walk wisely. We want our lives to embody the things that honor you, that will glorify you, that will be good for our souls and our relationships and our families. And so, Father, it's with that posture of humility we come before you now, asking you to open our eyes to your word. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. May take your seats. We're going to look at four attributes, characteristics, you might even call them values, that marked this church in Rome some 2,000 years ago. Now, understand something as we do this. These are not exhaustive. There is so much here that we could continue to, to sort of reap from God's Word if we were to spend the time. But these four things are things that I just, that jump out to me that seem to me to be particularly relevant, particularly in, in light of the cultural moment that we are living in. These are four values of the enduring Christian and the enduring community. So that's our, that's our title. And the way that I'm, I'm describing these is I'm there, I've given each of them a, a single word. And I'm not going to give them to you all at once. You'll have to wait as we unfold them one at a time, all right? So here's the first one, and the first value that sort of jumps out to me, and hopefully it jumps out to you too, is just friendship. Guys, there are no less than 34 specific individuals mentioned here in chapter 16. That doesn't even include a whole host of other families and households and house churches that Paul also greets by extension. Now, let's be honest, the, the introverts in here, you're terrified of Romans 16, aren't you? You get nervous about thinking of meeting 34 people, right? Much less knowing 34 people, right? 
And we have to ask, how, how can the Apostle Paul know so many people in such an intimate, personal way? Because let's be honest, the older we get, the more that our sphere of friends tends to shrink. So I was just thinking about this the other day. Susan and I got married right, right out of college, a year out of college. This was when we were at the height of our friend groups, when we had the most robust number of friends, and we obviously couldn't hurt anybody's feelings by telling them they weren't going to be an attendant in our wedding, so we just decided, let's ask everyone. We probably asked you, right? We, we, our wedding photos look like a Mormon family reunion, I kid you not. So we've got 11 women on this side, 11 guys on this side, and eight pastors, and it was, it was insane. But what happens as we get older? those friend groups shrink. So think about the people who uh, were your best friends in high school. Think about the people who were in your wedding. Think about the Christians that God has placed in your life along the way. And God does give special relationship, right? Some of them you've been in contact with, but let's be honest, most of them, many of them, we don't. The exact opposite is true for the Apostle Paul. This pool of folks, by the way, doesn't even include all of the friends he had in Philippi. Ephesus, Thessalonica, Antioch, Corinth, Colossae. Guys, in a lot of ways, culturally speaking, we could say that Paul was the supreme networker. See, all of these people knew each other, listen, because of Paul. Now, we didn't read this verse, but listen, in verse 21 of, chapter, of, of this chapter, Listen to all of the people that Paul had with him. Now, these aren't the Paul, people Paul's addressing. These are the people that Paul had with him that were a part of his posse, his entourage, his group. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, Quartus. Greet you, Paul says. What do they all have in common besides the fact that they knew Christ? They all had in common the Apostle Paul. I find that fascinating. What, what does it teach us? What does it tell us? Guys, I don't, I don't want to overcomplicate the scriptures. It's right here for us to see, right? I think what Romans 16 shows us is the supreme spiritual value of friendship. Guys, friendship was not just a priority for the Apostle Paul. It was a principal priority. Community for Paul was not an option Sharing life was not a luxury. Relationships were the very lifeblood of Paul's ministry and personal life. It's what sustained Paul to the end. And, I'll, and I'll, let me show you something. Paul is getting ready in 2 Timothy. He's writing Timothy. He's about to be martyred. And I want you to think about what's on Paul's heart and mind as he gets ready to be executed. 2 Timothy 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila. We just heard about them. And the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. What was on Paul's mind right before he is about to go be with the Lord? His friends. Guys, when we get to the end of our lives, we are not going to wish that we went to more places or that we took up more hobbies or that we did more things. We are going to wish prayerfully that we had more time with the people we love. 
we are going to wish that we had leveraged our lives even more for people, for relationships. Paul, Paul, this wasn't Paul just throwing out propositions and do's and don'ts. This was the reality of Paul's life. He, his, his very soul was embedded, the lifeblood of his, of his very existence were the people of God and the people around him. Why, why does he tell Timothy to come before winter? You know, we know in the ancient world, you did not travel at winter. You didn't fight wars at winter. You didn't go outside at winter. And he knew if Timothy delayed and did not get there before winter, then he very well could be that he would never see Timothy again. But he had to because Timothy was his spiritual son in the faith. Timothy is who he poured his very life into. Guys, in, in saying that friendship was a primary value of the early church. These weren't simply folks who were sharing a covenant beverage and watching the ancient Greek games um, and hanging out and calling that fellowship, right? Now, by the way, nothing wrong with doing all those things. I hope you're doing all those things, right? But what makes Christian fellowship distinctly Christian and not just hanging out is the common bond we share in Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about koinonia, when Paul talks about fellowship, he's talking about sharing the very most important thing that we have in common, and that is our union in Christ. That's why you can travel anywhere in the globe and meet complete and total strangers, and you immediately will have more in common with them than you will any other person in your life who doesn't know Christ. Guys, there was such a strong bond of koinonia, a friendship, a fellowship in the early church, that this shared affection bled over into physical proximity with each other, with, with, with actual physical touching. Paul tells us here in verse 16, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, one thing you need to know about the holy kiss is that it was something culturally adhered to both by believers and non-believers. I want to say it's something equivalent to the handshake, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't be strong enough, right? It would be something akin to, to a warm embrace, an affectionate hug. Remember in the story of Jesus, and Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house, and Simon did not like Jesus. And Jesus knew this. And remember the woman of ill repute came and started crying at Jesus' feet and spilled her perfume on Jesus' feet. And Simon rebuked her. And what did Jesus tell Simon? Simon, when I came into your house, you did not even offer me what? A kiss. See, there is a sense in which the people of God are so eager to be together. There, there, there's such a push, there's such an urgency to be in physical proximity. That's why um, streaming worship services, while it can be helpful for those who are invalid, for those who are traveling, is never to be a substitute for being with the very people of God. And this being with people extends even to the way that we interact, that we engage, that we hug. Guys, we need to be can I say this? A hugging people. Not a creepy hugging people, but a hugging people. 
And you know the difference, right? There's that affectionate bond of just shoulder slaps and shaking hands and, of course, the Christian side hug. No, no. I mean, sometimes it's like the Christian side hug is so terrible, right? You need the full-on Christian hug, right? You get the idea. Here's, here's an application before we leave this point. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? And you may say, Pastor Paul, I just, I'm, I'm that kind of person who doesn't make friends easily. Well, I'm the kind of person who's not very patient. That just means you're going to have to work a little bit harder, right? Even when there are certain commands of Scripture that don't come naturally to us, whether it's sharing our faith or bearing the fruits of the Spirit or um, having friends, we need to say, well, that's just a place that I need the grace of God. Have you prayed for friends? Because never have we been in a culture that has so many acquaintances, but so few friends. Never have we been so connected, yet so lonely. Because we won't make it to the end, apart from the body of Christ. So take an inventory. Who, who knows you? Take another inventory. Who do I know? I think about friendship as like a, like a bullpen. Like if you're, a, if you're a baseball team, you need a strong bullpen and pitching rotation to carry you through the season. You may have your star. You may have your ace, right? But you can't send him out to pitch every single game. You need your closure. You need your setup. You need your middle reliever. You need your four or five starters. You get, you get the idea. Who, who is on the spiritual bullpen of your team? This marked the early church. Church, I pray it marks us as a fellowship. Second thing, second thing I want to point out that just leaps out, I think, from this text. And this is this idea of sisterhood. Sisterhood. Because there are at least nine women named specifically by name in this chapter, which is, which is staggering considering when you compare it to other works of antiquity, and particularly staggering when you think about how women were viewed outside the Christian culture at that time. Women were at best the way progeny were produced and inheritances passed down. At worst, women were just above cattle, but just below slaves in terms of value. So for Paul here, if, he, if, if this was an outsider who got a hold of this manuscript and was reading this letter, this would just be a stunning turn of events. For Paul to mention women by name, and not just by name, but women who were serving faithfully in ministry, in leadership, um, in community, who were, who were vitally important to the lifeblood of that church, this would have been scandalous. But we see this pattern over and over in the life of Paul. We also see it in the life of Jesus. We know that Jesus pioneered all of this. Women traveled with Jesus. They were a part of his entourage. They were patrons. They served. They ministered. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection because the disciples, what, overslept or whatever it was, okay? Guys, it's not an understatement, and this could be an entirely other message. Christianity literally revolutionized 
the worldview of men and women as equals and co-heirs before God. Guys, nowhere else in the history of the world outside the Christian community has there been such a radical reorientation of the value of women. Even today, where people who askew Christian worldview and uh, traditional understandings of marriage and gender and sexuality don't know it, but they are living off of borrowed capital. This idea that men and women are, are equal is something embedded into the heart of the gospel because men and women are both made in the image of God. Both men and women are co-heirs in Christ. Now let me show you a couple of, of how examples of the way this fleshes out in this chapter. Look back at verse 1. Very interesting, the very first person mentioned in this chapter is what? A woman named Phoebe. Now, here's what's fascinating. First of all, Paul tells us that she is from Sincrea. We're going to be visiting that city, by the way, next, next year as part of this trip. Sincrea um, was the port city of Corinth. This is one of the reasons we think that Paul was in Corinth when he was writing this letter. You see, Paul wrote the letter from Corinth, but he had to get it to Rome somehow. Well, how did that happen? Well, Paul here commends Phoebe and tells the church in Rome to treat her with hospitality. Now, why does Paul do this? Most scholars believe it's probably because she was the carrier of the letter. When you think about that for a second, Phoebe carried maybe the greatest piece, piece of Scripture, the letter ever written in the history of the world from Corinth to Rome because she could be trusted. And because Paul knew that if a guy did it, he would lose it on the way in the bottom of his chariot or something. You, you, get, what I, you get what I'm saying, right? In fact, we think Phoebe, go, look back at verse 1, it calls her a minister or a servant. Same word that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for what? Deacon. And when we preached through Timothy a year or two ago, we talked about this idea, and this is our position as a church. We believe 1 Timothy 3 um, makes provision for both men and women to serve in the position of deacon in the local body. Don't have time to go back and give all that exposition, but we think 1 Timothy 3 teaches that. There are several examples from the New Testament. Phoebe includes, is included. But we know this was a pattern from the earliest moments of the church that while God has entrusted the spiritual leadership of the church, preaching and teaching to male pastors and elders, he has called both men and women to be deacons, servants, helpers to carry out the mission of the body of Christ. Phoebe, we believe, was the deacon par excellence. Another woman that I want to mention, that Paul mentions, is this woman, Prisca. It's the shortened version of Priscilla. And we see her and her husband, Aquila, in multiple places in the New Testament. Interestingly, where did Paul first meet Aquila and Priscilla? He met them in Corinth. And they, were, they went on, Priscilla and Aquila, to serve with Paul at the church in Ephesus. And Acts 18 gives us this fascinating exchange that happened with Priscilla and Aquila, the husband-wife team, with this teacher named Apollos. So listen to Acts 18. 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now listen to this. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they, plural, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. John Piper would call this kind of woman a sage. A sage are the women that God has raised up in the church who can speak hearts of, can speak with words of wisdom, with words of truth, with words of doctrine into the heart of other men and the heart of other women. Guys, I cannot tell you what a sage my wife Susan has been to me. I cannot tell you how many bad sermons Susan has spared you from. <laughs> to which you might say, well, it sounds like you need to work with her a little more closely, Pastor Paul. Point taken, I get it, right? And what, what does that look like? This is like, hey, as you're saying that, you might want to think about this. Or I, I know this is true theologically, but what, what's the context of that? And how does this apply to people's lives? And how will this be received by both the men and the women in the church? Guys, it's, it's an invaluable gift. And all men need this in their lives, whether it's boys and their mother, whether it's single men and sages, married men and women and their husbands. I mean, all men need this. And ladies, let me just simply say this. Prisca couldn't help instruct Apollos in private unless she was theologically astute, unless she was theologically learned, if she was not theologically trained, if she did not know the Word of God. Do you see what it says here? Apollos was a gifted dude. He was preaching and teaching from the Scriptures, but there was some part of his doctrinal piece that was missing, and Priscilla and Aquila helped privately to supply it to him. Because what does this mean for us as a complementarian church? What do we mean by complementarian? What we mean by being a complementarian church is we believe that while men and women are both made in the image of God and co-heirs in Christ, that we have been given as men and women different functions both in the home and the church. That it's to men that God has has given this mantle of pastoral leadership, of teaching and preaching, in other words, of being the fathers of the church, and by extension, the fathers of the home. So on one hand, we want to be standing firmly in the gap against the tides of gender radicalization, of the reinterpretation, and, I, and I'll even use this term, deconstruction of sexuality and gender and marriage, we think that these distinctive roles are a blessing to the church, a blessing to the home. We think they're a blessing to society. At the same time, we want to recognize without the gifts of everyone, we are an incomplete body. We are impoverished in terms of our service, in terms of our theology, apart from a fully-orbed, theologically in tune, gifted and serving body of Christ, both men and women. 
which puts an onus on us, doesn't it not? Women, are you fanning into flame the gifts of God that he's given you? Where are you seeking to be that sagacious influence, that wisdom? Where are you pouring your life into other people? Men, are you setting a pattern? Are you setting example as the spiritual fathers of the church? Because we're part of the Harbor Network. That's our family of churches. Um, and I was, I've been serving on this theological advisory committee where we've been working out some of our distinctives as a network. And we came together a couple summers ago, and we studied Romans 16. And here was our unified voice as we came out of that study. We want our Harbor Network churches to be Romans 16 kinds of churches. Guys, my heart and prayer is that we will see how necessary all of us are to the accomplishment of the mission of God, serving faithfully in our God-given roles and functions. It was true of the church in Rome. May it be true of Four Oaks Church 2,000 years later. All right, let's go to these last two attributes that I see in this text, and we'll go through these a little more quickly. This one I mentioned last week, but I have to mention it again because it is so obvious, and that is the attribute of generosity. One of the things that I said last week is the mission does not go forward, the gospel does not go forward without generosity. Generosity is one of the means that God uses to push forward the building of his church. He uses prayer, he uses evangelism, service preaching, and one of the things he undoubtedly uses is the people of God being generous. And there are three ways that it seems that the church in Rome was generous. And again, these are not exhaustive, but I think they're the ones that really jump out to me. First of all, it goes without saying, they were generous with their money. Look at verse 1. It says, Phoebe was one of Paul's patrons. What does that mean? She paid Paul's bills. So that Paul could be devote his time full-time to the gospel and serving the church, Phoebe, and we don't know if this was through an inheritance or she was widowed, we, we, don't, we don't know, but she not only supported Paul in his ministry, she supported, it says, many others. Remember, Paul also had another patron in Philippi, another city we're going to visit next summer, and what, what was her name? Lydia. Lydia was actually the first convent of the church in Philippi. The church met in her home and she was one who gave of her time, her patronage, her money to make sure the gospel goes forward. Let, let me just say this, guys. There are many metaphors for who we are as the body of Christ. But do you see yourself as a patron, as someone who provides and cares for the needs of the church through your giving? Guys, if, if, you were, if you were new to Four Oaks or you receiving ministry here, we just, let me just say, we invite you into the partnership of giving. Guys, one, a lot of times you'll hear us say, hey, this is how the mission goes forward is the people of God are generous with their financial giving, and that's true. But let me really encourage you to take that a step further. Because if you take that ethic of, well, giving allows the ministries of the church to go forward, the mission to go forward, it'd be very easy to say in a church this size, well, Pastor Paul, my giving doesn't matter. 
I mean, somebody else will pick up the slack. Nobody will really know if I, mine doesn't, if I don't get whatever. Because that's looking at it pragmatically. We have to understand that our giving is an act of worship. That our giving is a transaction between us and God. And it's not simply what God does with your gift through giving. Guess what? It's what God does in your heart through giving. And when we think about that, then we sort of transcend this sort of give and take and what did I give and what did I receive in return to say, you know what? This all belongs to God. I want to be generous with my money. This was the, this was the church in Rome. A second way they were generous is not just with their, with their money, but it was with their resources, specifically their homes. Now, if you look at verse 5, it talks about the church that met in so-and-so's house. Scholars think there were anywhere between three to five house churches in Rome. And the reason that churches didn't have buildings is that they began worshiping in the synagogues. They were kicked out of the synagogues. And where else were they going to meet but people's homes? Big homes, right? The estimate is that probably upwardly of 50 people met in a house church in the New Testament. And the larger the city, the more house churches there were. And so there was probably anywhere from three to five house churches that Paul addresses in this passage. It's one of the most powerful things that can happen culturally, guys, when we open up our homes. Guys, we have gone to such lengths to draw boundaries, barriers between ourselves and the outside world, that to open up your home is just countercultural. Because I think about all the people in this church who've opened their homes to community groups, to events, to dinners, to sleepovers for their kids and their friends, to having people to lunch after church, to hosting Bible studies and things that are happening in the life of their friends and, and opening their homes to do that. Guys, there's nothing more countercultural than your neighbor driving by your house and seeing 20 cars outside and saying, what, what is going on here, right? We haven't had 20 cars visit our home in the history of the time we've been in our house, right? But when Christians open their homes, what they are doing is they are sharing their very lives. And of course, this is the third component that we see here. Christians were generous with their lives. Listen to, listen to verse 6. Mary worked hard. Persis worked hard. And there is this sense that not everybody in the church was a Phoebe. Not everybody was independently wealthy. Not everybody, some, some of these and I think about these as widows probably, did not have two cents to rub together, but what they did have to give was their time. What they did have to give was their very life. I, I, I love the way it refers to Rufus's mother, right? Ruf, say hello to Rufus and his mother. She was like a mother to me. Because you mothers know this. How much work goes into motherhood? I mean, motherhood means constantly saying no to yourself in order for a better yes to something else. It means committing your very life and soul. And guys, there's an interesting dynamic at play. As the, you may say, well, Pastor Paul, what is being, I, I see where this thing of friendship and 
sisterhood and all that, you know, deals with faithfulness. But how, how does this idea of generosity, how does that fit into like me persevering? Guys, there is this paradoxical thing that happens that we are more blessed to give than to receive. And when we are generous with our life, our time, our resources, our money, it generates this outward focus in our lives. It propels us forward into mission. It, it sharpens our focus. It gives us a spiritual momentum that I believe God uses to sustain the hearts of his people. Because the church in Rome was a generous church. And I think about all the ways that this church has been so generous. Guys, this, we're here worshiping right now because someone was generous with their time, money, resources. This church exists because somebody was generous with their time, money, resources. Let me simply call us to continue in that. Last thing and then we're done. This one I think is the hardest because it's, I think, makes a clear claim on us, and that's this idea of risk. Look at verse 3. It says, Prisca and Aquila, I love this, risked their necks for my life. Now, that's kind of the sanitized version in the Greek. What it really says is, Prisca and Aquila put their throats under the sword. Think about that for a second. This isn't a matter of like, I was hit by accident or someone hurt me and I didn't see it coming. This actually says they actually intentionally, purposefully said, thank you, sir, I'll take another and put their head right under the sword, right? And we, know, we don't know what specifically Prisca and Aquila did when they risked their lives for Paul, but we do know there was a time when they were ministering with Paul in Ephesus and Paul was about to get his throat cut. So listen to, to Acts 19. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius, we just heard about him, Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. I, I don't know if this happened like this. We're going to find out one day. But I can just imagine Prisca and Aquila saying, Paul, Paul, we know you want to go into the arena, but your time's not yet. The church needs you. If you go in there, they're going to tear you apart limb from limb. We're, we're holding on to your sandals. We're holding on to your robe. And Paul sort of comes to his senses, right? They risked their very lives for Paul. Guys, sometimes you will hear soldiers say, those who've been in combat, that the most intimate bonds that they have in terms of human relationships are those they have fought in the trenches with, those who have chewed the same dirt. They've been on the same mission. They've gone into battle together. And Paul seems to be alluding to this in verse 7. Look, look, look at verse 7. It says, he addresses Androconus and Junia, he says, who are his kinsmen and fellow prisoners. First of all, his kinsmen doesn't mean that he's related it means, you'll see the word kinsman several times in the passage, it just means fellow Jews. But Paul has an interesting word about Androconus and Junia. He calls them my fellow prisoners. Now that's interesting. There seemed to have been some time in the past, we don't know what it was, where Paul and Androconus and Junia, this husband-wife team, 
were all thrown into prison together. They were on some common mission. They were, they were, they were sharing the gospel. They were doing something um, to minister and risk and leverage their lives for the gospel. And Paul says, we were all thrown into the slammer together. And can you imagine them being there? Maybe they were singing hymns. Maybe they were praying. Maybe they were wondering, is this it? Is this going to be the end of the line for us? Guys, when we suffer together, those bonds grow deep. And there are no deeper bonds than gospel suffering. Because it goes without saying, when we talk about risk, that we are risk-adverse as a culture. I'm risk-adverse as a person. But we have to acknowledge something, and this is where we have to bring our cultural moment under the authority of the Word of God. Without risk, the gospel does not advance. Now, I'm not talking about just physical risk, although that might be in store for some of us. Who's to say, kind of like going through old profiles of DNA that somebody's not going through five years from now, ten years from now, all these old sermon archives, right? Finding out who said what and who attended that meeting. So it's not out of the realm to say this might be a physical risk for some of us, but I'm talking about risk in all its facets. When you and I decide to live lives on mission and leverage our lives for the gospel, God will call us as a church and as Christians to all sorts of risk. Maybe that's relational risk at the Thanksgiving table this coming Thursday, right? Maybe it's a financial risk or a family risk, a reputational risk, a vocational risk. Some place where God calls you through the power of his spirit and the courage and the boldness of the gospel to take your stand. Because it might be within the confines of your own home. It might be with your kids or in your marriage. It might be in your workplace or in your neighborhood. I, I don't know. But this risk, apart from it, the gospel of Christ is not advanced. This is the way it's been for the history of the church. So where is God calling you, church, Four Oaks family, to risk? Where, where is he calling you to take that step knowing, if I do this, it might mean this. It might make a claim. God, I'm entrusting myself. I just know you're calling me to be faithful and obedient. Because let me say this in conclusion as we wrap this up. We're about 40 days out from New Year's. That's the time we make resolutions. But now is the time, I would say, to take spiritual inventory of our lives. Which of these areas do you feel God pressing in on? Which of these areas, the things we talked about today, do you see... Do you want to see God do a work of grace personally in your life? Where, where do you feel just the gentle tug of conscience and conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning? And guys, this is how we know we're Christians, is that when the Holy Spirit convicts, faith and repentance just bleed out. And we say, God, I know 
This is what you've called me to, but this is where I am. And the only thing that we ultimately can do is run to Jesus. Guys, here's the thing. Jesus has perfectly embraced all of these things. Jesus has fulfilled these things in his life. He has borne our iniquities and sin. He has died in our place as our substitute. And it is by his grace that today we become more faithful, enduring Christians, and enduring community. Guys, that's why we end every service by coming to this table. Because we are reminding ourselves of the need for the grace of Jesus Christ. Guys, where, where do you need God's grace from Romans 16? What might he want to do in your life this season, in my life this season, in our church's life this season? As we come to the table this morning, let's cling to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to ask you just to spend a minute or so just silently meditating in preparation for coming to the table, and I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward and prepare to serve the elements.